What's up, everyone? Today, you are going to hear from one of my most influential mentors, Stephen Houghton. Steve talks about how buying underpriced assets allowed him to quit his job after college and make millions. We talk about the principles that he uses every day to evaluate deals in an uncertain climate and what he would be thinking about today if he were starting over. If these episodes have helped you on your journey, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's a topic or person you want to deeper dive on, hit me up on LinkedIn, Raleigh Williams, Instagram at RaleighW or Twitter at Raleigh underscore W. Let's get on to the show. Wow. Okay, today I have Steve Houghton. I've been looking forward to this one, Steve. Um, I don't know, you... You are probably the two most influential people in my path of going from being a lawyer at a job that I couldn't stand in Dallas, Texas, to moving into entrepreneurship, doing my own thing. So I appreciate you taking the time to inspire um, the, the listeners that we have today. My pleasure. Nice to be with you, Raleigh. Okay, so... Uh, now you run Houghton Capital and you do a lot of investing, asset investing. Anytime that I have any liquidity, I try to come to you and ask you how I should go about spending it. I have three or four quotes that I'm sure we'll talk about today that I have from you, like do something that if you're right, you get rich. And if you're wrong, you don't go broke, live your first 10 years, like few will so that way you can live the next 50 like few can those are some just off the top of my head um but i i think it'd be really helpful to kind of go back to the beginning um where you're at trammel crow just you graduate you graduate from college you're at trammel crow and how that transition looked from Trammell Crow, what you were doing there and what it looked like as you began to kind of look at outside opportunities. Okay. Uh, well, so I, I spent about a year and a half getting on with Trammell Crow because they didn't hire uh, college students without an MBA. And I was convinced once I got on that that was my path to fame and fortune and my life was set. And then I saw an article, uh, actually it was the week that I got my offer and it was the cover story of Forbes that said the, the dying of the dinosaurs, how Trammell Crow, Vantage and Lincoln Properties are broke but don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, you know, I was heartbroken when I read that. The next day I got a FedEx package from Trammell Crow refuting uh, the Forbes article point by point. Uh, and so, of course, I chose to believe uh, Trammell Crow, uh, but it did put me on notice uh, that things might not be exactly like what I had hoped they would be or expected. And after I'd been with Trammell Crow for, I don't know, six months, I realized that the future with them wasn't going to look like I had anticipated or hoped. And so I started thinking, boy, what am I going to do now? Yeah. And... Was that it, it, you? You started to become persuaded that the article that you had read was right, just because it looked like liquidity was tighter than it used to be, or people started packing up, or? Well, I, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that it was going to become more of a corporate opportunity than the entrepreneurial opportunity it had been. And yeah. being a vice president of real estate at a big corporation just did not 
uh, didn't ring my bell. So I, I just realized that if I was going to be really happy, I just didn't, that wasn't the path I, I ought to pursue. Yeah. And, and so, uh, Jennifer and I fortunately were on the same page as far as saving. We really tightened our belt, saved every nickel we could, uh, and started trying to figure out what are we going to do and where do we go from here? And we were in the epicenter of the savings and loan crisis at the time. This is in 1991. And I mean, everybody thought that anything from a failed savings and loan was snake bit and, and junk. Right. Uh, and so it was kind of a, this recipe. You had the dumbest seller in the world, the federal government. Uh, There's no liquidity. Banks balance sheets were impaired. They weren't lending. And so it just had this setup for, uh, you know, big transfer of wealth. And I mean, even garbage is, is valuable if you buy it cheap enough. Yeah. And, you know, so uh, Jennifer and I uh, looked at all the low interest rate credit cards. I mean, we didn't have a trust fund or anything to, to rely on. So we thought, what, geez, where are we going to get money? And, you know, the one place you can get money is it's easy to get credit cards. And so we applied for every low interest rate credit card we could find. And I didn't really know how the whole process worked with the credit reports. And so we filled out all the applications, mailed them in the same day. And uh, voila, we ended up getting $70,000 worth of, of credit. Um, and so I gave Trammell Crow my two weeks notice and uh, called the company Commerce First Financial because it sounded big and impressive. And, uh, <laughs> and they didn't have the internet back then where you could figure out it was just some yeah. guy working out of his apartment. Uh, but, and then started bidding on all these assets from the failed savings and loans that, that nobody wanted. What kind of directed you to the savings and loan? Did you just have a, a hunch that you were kind of at the bottom of the savings and loan cycle and it was going to be all upside from there? Or did it, was it, did somebody put you on to the investment? No, I, I, had, I had a friend who was buying stuff uh, from savings and loans. He was buying performing loans. Uh, he had a small uh, community bank and he was buying performing loans at this deep discount. And, and so I had the, the luxury of seeing that somebody was doing it and doing it successfully. And, and he, he really was a wonderful mentor. And what I did is, is different than what he was doing because I was a lot further down the food chain buying the garbage. Uh, I, I bid on, uh, uh, but it gave me inspiration. It gave me hope. And I kind of thought, well, you know, if he's doing it, maybe I can too. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the best kept secrets is that uh, working for yourself is not as hard as working for somebody else most of the time. Yeah. I think if you're motivated, you know, if, if you have a hard time getting motivated, then you probably should have a boss. But if you're self-motivated, you're, you know, reasonably intelligent and you're a hustler, then I think you ought to get the best boss in the world and work for yourself. Right. Because it's just not as hard 
Yeah. As, as most people think it is. And I also think, I also think a secret that I've had to learn more and more that I've, when you go to law school, it puts, it puts, it teaches you bad habits because the other thought is working for yourself means that you should be this lone wolf that's all by yourself and you have to learn everything and find the opportunity from start to finish and it all needs to, it all needs to come from your brain. You need to have the idea, execute on it and know everything from soup to nuts. And my path was expedited by interacting with you, just like your path was expedited by interacting with this guy, your buddy who was doing this and kind of took you along the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's a good point. And I think that um, there's so many resources to learn from. And the fact is, my story is not that helpful if you think that you're going to do it exactly the way I did, because you're never going to have the exact same opportunity. But if you can draw from the story, the principles, I mean, application changes day to day, but the principles are enduring. And that's what really matters. And I think we're headed into a time where there's fabulous opportunity. And if somebody is prepared, they're willing to take a, a little bit of risk, I, I think it's, it's an amazing time to be alive. And I think yeah. there's incredible opportunities. And, um, but I think so many times we expect them to be just like they were in the past, and that's not gonna be the case. Right. So when you were buying, so when you started buying savings and loans, and as, as you're buying savings loan, you're buying, pay, you're buying the paper to a distressed asset or you're buying the asset itself? What was well, the I, Yeah, I was bidding on, essentially I was bidding on the assets that came out of these savings and loans. So the bank, when a savings and loan or a bank collapses, you have the federal government that's insured those depositors. And so they come in and pay off the depositors and then they take all the assets of the savings and loan or the bank and they were selling those off. And the assets I originally bid for were non-performing loans uh, where there was a debt obligation, uh, but they weren't making their payments. And some of those loans had assets or collateral underlying them. And some of them were just the, the loan unsecured. Right. Yeah. And so I was bidding on really a grab bag of assets. Yeah. And they were letting you do that based off of, I guess, so you close on the loan, you have the $70,000 line of credit on the credit card and you close on something for 5,000 and that just draws down from the credit card and you have this $5,000 thing. Essentially, yeah. So the first, so first, uh, first package of loans we bit that I ended up being a successful purchaser of, it was like $1.6 million worth of loans and I was able to buy it for $64,000. So about four <laughs> cents on the dollar. And I will always remember that day. I was terrified and I'm trying to, I don't want my wife to be terrified. And if she knows how anxious I am, she will get anxious and that'll make it even worse. Yeah. So I'm secretly drinking Maalox telling her no problem. I got this figured out. You know, this is awesome. But in my stomach, I'm like, ah, oh, thinking of, <laughs> I may have really, screwed up. I had this reoccurring nightmare of me standing before my father-in-law 
and he's a doctor and he's like, you know, Steve, how did you go broke? And I'm like, well, uh, you know, I, I bought these assets and it didn't work out. And he's like, well, so what made you think you buy those assets? I guess Trammell Crow was a bank. And I'm like, well, no. Anyway, I had this horrible nightmare. Uh, but then I would go back through my analysis, uh, which is I had more, I had about $80,000 of collateral. And so I thought, worst case, I can grab the collateral, get my credit cards paid off, and then I got a million and a half dollars worth of, of obligations that I ought to be able to find some profit in there somewhere. Right. And, and go ahead. So was that a concern? I, I'm sure you had a, a liquidity concern because you're, you're drawing down on a credit card that you're, you're having to pay on some monthly basis or incur these insane uh, interest charges. So I guess that's, that, that was your plan to deal with your immediate liquidity problem that you had just created in terms of yeah. credit. Yeah. Basically, it was kind of like a blue light special when I bought the loans, I would go to all the borrowers, tell them Commerce First Financial owned their loan, and then let's make a deal. And yeah. I would, I was able to get my credit cards paid off in two months, and then, you know, worked the others and collected the profits over time. But as soon as I thought about my credit cards, kind of like a retailer thinks about their inventory, which is you want to turn it, as, you get as many turns in a year as you can. So my goal was to buy assets, get my credit cards paid off, continue to collect on those assets while I go buy more and kind of keep that, keep that going. Yeah. In a sense, my capital is like, uh, is like a hammer to a home builder. You know, yeah. you, you can build homes with your hammer, but if you loan your hammer out, you got to get it back so you can build more homes. And that's kind of the way it was with capital. I'd deploy my capital figure out a way to get it back so then I could redeploy it. Yeah. How long, how long were you doing this savings and loan um, investment for? Yeah, I did that for about three years and I did 15, about 15 deals in that time. But after I did like two or three deals, I was able to go to some local small banks and get them to start financing my deal. So I didn't use the credit cards that's really just what got me started yeah. with the first couple of deals. Yeah. But you know, it's remarkable how easy it is to get a banker to view you as a good credit risk and as an expert. <laughs> <laughs> if you do it once and you succeed, it's pretty easy to They're convince in. them you're an expert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even though you've only done it once uh, because they want to loan money. Yeah. Um, and, so you're doing savings loans for three years and then how does that, did, did it just become harder and harder to get deals done, more and more money in the game? You started getting priced out of deals. How did that kind of come to its natural end? Yeah, it, uh, the way it always does, which is more and more people hear about it and they start bidding up the prices. And the fact is Goldman put a fund together and they started bidding on these loans. And after three years, they were, you know, the, the real opportunities I thought were bid out of the, I mean, you could only make like 15%, which I thought was horrible at the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so it was there 
I bid on a portfolio of self-storage loans. They were non-performing self-storage loans. And to understand what the loans were worth, I had to figure out the business. And so I spent a little bit of time and I just realized, oh, you know, this is kind of an interesting opportunity. And at the time, it cost about half of what it cost to build apartments, but you could rent them out for the same amount per square foot. And so I thought, wow, this seems like a pretty good opportunity when this whole loan thing is over. So when, uh, you know, at the end of about three years, I transitioned and started building self-storage properties and took, you know, I'd made about 3 million bucks in that three years from the savings and loan thing. And so I was able to take that and roll it into the self-storage business. And that made it so I didn't have to take on a bunch of financial partners. Right. Uh, but uh, and, just. And you started developing. Yes. You go buy raw land, get all the approvals and yeah. build the thing, build it and operate it yourself, build it and sell yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, build it and operate it myself. For the most part, uh, I hate to sell things. I uh, once something is, it's you know, they're my assets are kind of like my kids. You know, they're hard to part with. Do you are you still in the building of storage unit business, or the acquisition of distressed storage units, or just holding what you have? Uh, well, we got I got spoiled in two thousand nine, ten, and eleven. Uh, and started buying them from banks at 50% of replacement cost. And boy, that's an easy, that's a much easier way to do it. <laughs> let someone else go to the work of building it, let it go back to the lender and then buy it from the lender. Um, and, and so I have not developed storage since then. I've um, been waiting for the next opportunity to, to come. Yeah. Um, how do, how do you how do you deal with or analyze those kind of counter narratives of you know this asset class is never gonna rebound? I'm sure in the future, you know, probably in a couple of years, retail and office commercial spaces will have very similar narratives of no one's ever yeah. going back to the office again. Uh, we're never gonna shop the way that we used to. Um, do you? How, how do you go about thinking about that? How do you yeah, analyze I, that when you're pricing an asset? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the, the hardest part about being an investor is not, uh, I don't think it's finding good investments as much as it is being, or being smart enough to find good investments. I think it's managing your emotions. I, I think that being patient, I think remaining uh, calm, and I think the ability to run in a different direction than the herd. I mean, you think about humans for all of our existence, we survived because we stayed with the group. Uh, but capitalism turns that on its head. And, and so, you know, if you're going to be a successful capitalist, you're going to have to learn to run the opposite direction of the herd. Because if you stay with the herd, you're going to get slaughtered. Right. And, and so we have to go against our nature that's been developed over, you know, eons of time uh, in order to, to, to be successful. And so I think being independent, but I think so much of it comes down to just common sense and kind of calming your emotions enough to really think rationally about whatever the narrative is. 
And, you know, like this narrative with oil and gas, uh, as you can imagine, the last month has not been that exciting of a month to be in the oil and gas business. (laughs) 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 I mean, things that, that you thought were unthinkable have come to pass. Yeah. And, and yet, in my calm moments, thinking about it, you know, all of these alternative energy sources, yeah, I think that, that someday we won't be using fossil fuels. But I think that day is probably in, in the distant future. It's not, it's not just right around the corner. And I think staying calm and being able to, uh, you know, the same thing with real estate. You know, back in 2009, 10, and 11, it felt like it was never going to come back. Right. But if you study history, and if you read about history, you just realize that there's cycles and there's rhythms. And uh, you, you just want to be sure that you're not thinking about the ice business uh, in a time that refrigeration was invented. Because right. that's your big fear. Right. Yeah. Because there are some businesses that won't come back. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've thought in the last, you know, I'm glad I didn't get into uh, the the phone booth business. You know, <laughs> that, that would have been a rough business to, to, to get in back in the 80s. It looked like a pretty good business. But uh, then the cell phones came along and it, it didn't turn out to be such a good business, even though it had been for many years. Yeah. So how do you how do you think about and there probably isn't there probably isn't a silver bullet. Um, abstract answer to this, but thinking about whether you're playing victim to the crowd's fears that life will never be the same, or whether you're um, on the brink of being out innovated and being innovated, you know, being put out of business because there's new technology or, you know, I'm sure in the, in the storage unit business, there's probably some some headwind on oh well there are all these apps that you know you're going to be able to store things in other people's garages and minimalism and people aren't going to carry as much stuff for the foreseeable future so how do you try to how do you go about trying to assess whether this is just the narrative of the crowd and this is where you make your money being um you know counter crowd or whether you're about whether you're on the verge of extinction well, I think those things are hard to predict. And so that is why one of my fundamental principles is margin of error. And if I'm, you know, if I'm buying a storage property that's 90% occupied, that is hitting on all cylinders, then those are big concerns. Because if right. anything goes wrong, I'm going to get washed out. Yeah. But if I'm buying a storage property at 40% occupancy and I'm buying it based on its current cash flow and it's fundamentally a good property, then it doesn't, I don't have to improve it that much uh, to survive. Right. And when the market comes back, I mean, essentially I'm buying 40% of the project and I'm getting 60% free. Right. And so I've got this huge margin of error. Uh, and, and I just think that uh, margin of error, buying things cheap, it, it's hard to overstate the importance of that. And I think 
one of the one of the mistakes people make is uh, we tend to gravitate to these really competitive markets. I mean, there's a lot of people that that think they can go trade stocks right. and and get rich. And yeah, Warren Buffett did. <laughs> you know, there's a few people that do, but I I I, I liken it to, for, at least for me. You know, going and playing one on one basketball with LeBron James. Right. I mean, maybe I'll win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but probably not. Right. And, and in a public market, you're competing against, you know, you were at Chicago. You're competing against the smartest kids at Chicago. Right. Those kids that you just, you know, were so actually probably like you, you know, these, you know, uber smart. <laughs> <laughs> these uber smart people that you really don't want to compete with and yeah my transcript, my transcript bears that out that uh i didn't want to compete with them <laughs> <laughs> but in in all of these other types of businesses that aren't public markets where the the markets aren't so efficient uh that's where it's so much easier to make money where you're you're competing with local people not everybody in the world who, you know, has a few dollars to invest. Yeah. No, that makes sense. What's something that, what's an investment that you took that you regret taking and how did you go about uh, dissuading yourself of the narrative that you previously found persuasive? Uh, that is a good question. It's a painful question. <laughs> it's never fun to lose. Uh, and you actually know this instance. Uh, it, it was a, I, I don't invest in public companies, but I found a company that was beaten down. I felt like I was buying it for, uh, you know, pennies on the dollar. And, uh, and I underestimated how bad things could get. And I lost a bunch of money on it. Uh, and it was a great reminder that I, why I don't invest in public companies. Right. Because those markets are too efficient. Uh, if you get insider information, you go to jail. Right. Uh, and so you're really handcuffed. And there's just so many e easier ways to make money with less risk. Uh, but they don't always feel easier because you have to jump in and you have to get dirty. And, you know, it's so easy from your terminal of your computer to, to, you know, buy some stock that, that, you know, somebody on the business channel said was a, a great deal. Well, you know, if they're talking about it on the news, you missed it. Right. And, and one of my principles is, is if everybody thinks it's a good idea, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and and the you know all of my great investments, uh, I've kind of kept quiet about, not even because I didn't want people to know, but frankly because I didn't want to defend my decision because everybody would think I was stupid. Yeah, and it's easier just to keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, do it, and then let the results speak for themselves. On on the on the public equity deal, was there a point in time when you just said, did you do you set a benchmark and you say, okay, this is my drop dead date if this thing doesn't turn around by this time, or was it just um, what was the decision where you said, 
how did you make that change from this is a really cheap deal i'm you know this is really going to be great and as the price continues to go down you say oh maybe this isn't cheap this is a different raleigh raleigh i love that you bring up my greatest failure <laughs> to discuss uh, no Let's i go wrote deep it into it <laughs> i wrote it all the way to the bottom it's delisted now it's worth zero <laughs> I actually I didn't know that part. <laughs> I, knew yes. some, I knew some part. I I didn't know that part. So you just you yesterday, <laughs> just yesterday, my dear sweet wife said, "So Steve, is that are we going to get our money back from? I mean, that's still going to work out, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, sweetheart, no, it's not going to work out. It's zero. So uh, you were on the train until it ran off the cliff on that one. Yes, I was, and. Just because if I ever, if I ever invest in another public company, Raleigh, <laughs> I'm begging you, please come punch me in the face. <laughs> you have to give me one of your cars. We'll say that if you, you buy any, if you take any position, a car automatically comes to me. Yeah, do me a favor. That will be the cheapest car I ever buy. <laughs> uh, but it was a great lesson, and and and. You know, truly, as, as painful as it is, sometimes it's our failures we learn the most from. And it was a great reminder. Uh, I uh, underestimated uh, some things, but it's just a reminder. It, it's so much easier to make money out of the public markets. Yeah. And when you're, when you're thinking about, I mean, I completely understand kind of not talking with a lot of people because it forces you to take a defense position and build a narrative around what, you know, whether it's the asset class or the specific deal. Um, how do you go about trying to make sure, trying to triangulate the position and making sure that you're getting the best kind of counter information possible without, um, you know, just to make sure that, you're yeah. thinking about it correctly. But in general, Raleigh, the things I invest in are pretty simple. And you think about real estate. Real estate really is, is if you're buying real estate at 50 cents on the dollar, of, I mean, real estate's easy to understand the intrinsic value because the intrinsic value that Warren Buffett talks about is replacement cost right. for real estate. Yeah. So, uh, so it's easy to figure out what the intrinsic value is of real estate, number one. Number two, uh, it's not that hard to figure out what a good location is and a bad location. And with real estate, the only thing you can't change is the location. You can put on a new roof, you can change the color, whatever it is. I mean, you can do all kinds of things. You just can't change the location. And so one of my fundamental principles is you only buy good locations and yeah. preferably great locations. Because a, a bad location may never come back. Right. But if you're buying what is fundamentally a good real estate location, it's going to come. It's going to come back. And yeah. when it comes back, it will be worth replacement cost before people start build before competitors come in and build because they're not going to be able to get financing to build something if they can't rent it at at rates that cause your property to be worth more than replacement cost. Right. And so it's, it's really pretty simple. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. The hardest thing is being patient in, in the good cycle because, 
in fact, I remember this last year, driving around, seeing all these beautiful storage properties that have been developed and feeling FOMO. <laughs> and, and I caught myself and I thought, well, we must be getting near the top of a cycle uh, because I remember having those feelings back in 2007. Right. Uh, when I couldn't make deals make sense. And, uh, and I think that we are, uh, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see some tremendous opportunities. I think we're going to see a, a, a huge transfer of, of wealth as uh, we shift into a different, different phase in the economic cycle. How, how do you think about now, or maybe take yourself back to a Trammel Crow associate mindset, somebody who's kind of in a professional job. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, um, I guess, would you, would you advise your kids to do kind of the same thing that you did in terms of, you know, whether it's, going about financing deals that you're, that you're confident in, um, debt financing, other people's money. I, I, uh, my son worked, my oldest son worked at Goldman for a few years and he and his wife, uh, while the, while he was at Goldman saved everything he earned at Goldman so that he could be, he could build this, uh, war chest for himself and for both of them so that he wouldn't have to always work at Goldman, but that he would have some seed capital to go out and start his own thing. And so I think, in fact, my son Tanner, who introduced us, uh, <laughs> What's but Tanner said he listens to this. So I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's made it this far. <laughs> well, Tanner was asking me this morning, what are kind of the keys to being, you know, to doing something on your own? And, and the first step is learning to save money. It's hard to be a capitalist if you don't have a little bit of capital. Right. And you've got to figure out how to access capital. And I think for most of us, the first step is to get some. And then I think the second step is if you can borrow capital, uh, and, and find lenders that will loan you money, that's far better than taking on partners yeah. that will take, you know, a big piece of your deal. And I made a decision early on that I would rather do smaller deals that I owned 100% of and I controlled rather than doing big deals with lots of partners and lots of parties. And it's just more fun to keep your life uh unencumbered and less complicated. Now, if you have to do a deal with partners, the first deal or two, I think that's fine. And, you know, for some people, maybe that's great, but I, I just would rather keep my life simple, keep my lifestyle simple and, you know, have the best boss in the world, Yeah, which is yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, I think that's an important mindset shift. And I've spent a lot of time with you and I think um, I'm always surprised at how free your schedule is. And, you know, it, it's, it's very different than with capital partners. And when you have a lot of people at the table, you want, everyone wants to have a meeting about something and talk about their equity stake and what's going on in the future of the business. And I think it's, it's, um, it's an interesting 
mindset shift to to be a the captain of a smaller ship um and your ship ends up being bigger than most <laughs> and you own all of it well and I, I think it makes sense one of the things i've encouraged my my older kids to do is to think about think 30 years down the road and then work backwards think about where you want your what you want your life to look like in your 40s or 50s and, and then work backwards and i think it becomes a lot easier and it becomes a lot more obvious right and i, I think it was helpful you know, Jennifer and I have always been partners and, uh, you know, we have different roles and yet, even though she hasn't been involved in my, in the business day to day, she's my partner and she, she's been primarily focused on our family and our home, but we've still done all of this together. We've just had played different roles. And I think that if you're married, having your spouse uh, equally yoked with you and pulling in the same direction. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, what is, you said in order to be a capitalist, you kind of have to divorce yourself from the herd mentality and where the majority is going. What's something that you think right now, um, that the majority doesn't think? Uh, I think that we are headed towards inflationary times. I don't think uh, inflation is dead, although it's been in a deep slumber for the last you know, 40 years. I think we're going to see inflation again. And I certainly am positioning myself to, uh, while, while, I don't have to have inflation to do well. Uh, we're fine if I'm wrong. Uh, but if things are more inflationary, then I think we'll do very, very well. I think hard assets uh, do very well in inflationary environments. I think financial assets, although they've done great the last 30 or 40 years, I think financial assets are, are not going to do as well uh, in, yeah. in, the next, in the next time period. Which, just the way you explain that, kind of hits on margin of error. If you're, and the quote that is yours that I said at the beginning that if you're right, you get rich, and if you're wrong, you don't go broke. Uh, if inflation hits the way that you think that it might, then you're positioned to capture that upside. And if you're wrong, then it uh, doesn't sound like the exposure will sink the ship. Well, and something, Raleigh, I am certain of, and I can say this with 100% certainty, is that I am wrong about the future. It's not <laughs> going to be exactly like I think it's going to be. Uh, I think that I may be directionally right, but I'll be specifically wrong. Right. And so that's why you want a big margin of error, because how do you time when these things are going to unfold? And what if they don't unfold? The economy is very complex. And I was just at dinner last night with two friends and they're both really smart people whom I respect. And one of them is fully invested in this market, thinks that it's coming back and you know he bought at the low and he's gonna ride it out. The other one 
said last night, I wouldn't own an equity if you gave it to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they both are smart people. They see things very differently and they won't both be right. Uh, but you don't have to make all or nothing bets. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I try to avoid those things. I, as I've said to you, I, I try to do fewer deals, but do deals where there's a lot of margin of error, where, you know, if I'm right, I get rich. If I'm wrong, I don't go broke. I live yeah. to fight another day and I move on, you know, pick up the pieces, brush myself off and move on to the next deal. Yeah. Um, what is, what is, a book that you feel has influenced your life in a major way? Um, I read, I started reading studies from Carol Dweck about 12 or 13 years ago. And then she ended up writing a book called Mindset. And it's the idea of a growth uh, mindset versus a fixed mindset. And that's something that has has had a big impact in both business and my personal life. I would say more specific to business, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac yeah. is, is a fabulous book. That's uh, a hard book to get a hold of. It now, is, but, it, I, but it's I, worth getting a hold of it. I've been to multiple bookstores to try to get that book before, and I've still yet to uh, get it. Um, but you also put me on to growth mindset, uh, which Carly and I read together. And yeah, it, it, um, and I've since recommended to multiple people. Um, and I think the idea that you can learn and adapt and grow, I mean, it's changed the way I parent. It's changed the way I look at business. It's changed. Uh, and it's helped me recognize the areas of my life where I do have a fixed mindset of, oh, I'm, I, I can't do that. That's not something that I'm good at. And it at least uh, helps me um, pattern recognize. Um, what do you think, where, where do you think, um, where do you think is a good, where do you think the puck is going from an asset perspective? Um, post coronavirus um yeah um that i would say first of all i don't know <laughs> uh, and, and frankly i try to make bets where i don't have to be right right because i think it's really hard to know in the short run what the economy is going to do uh my guess is i think I probably handicap at 70%. This is an opening act of a multi-act play that's going to be, you know, I think we're going to go through some tough times. But I also think it's possible that with all this Fed intervention, I mean, maybe maybe we bounce back. But I, for the life of me, I, I'm highly skeptical of that. I think that, in fact, I, I said the other day that uh, that we won't be through this until the conventional wisdom don't fight the fed has been debunked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there's a limit to what the fed can do. 
I think they're going to throw everything at this, including the kitchen sink. And maybe they're able to keep things afloat. But I think eventually the day comes that uh, the, the Fed even uh, can't solve every problem. Right. Yeah. Um, which I guess goes into inflationary um, inflationary issues and kind of the, what the future landscape what the future landscape looks like. I mean, if you look at, if you're a student of history, after every war, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War II, Vietnam, all of those, we had big episodes of inflation. And, and what happened is we ran up huge debts during the wars, and then we inflated those debts away uh, to a more manageable level and, and then got back. And I think they're gonna try and do that again, whether or not they're successful at it. I don't know, but I think all the writing is on the wall that uh, the Fed is serious about getting inflation. And uh, I think eventually they'll succeed. Yeah. I think they'll get it. My last question for you is a, a critical part of your starting success was teaming up with a mentor that kind of helped you along the way. You played that role and still play that role for me and in, in my path in terms of giving me permission to pivot from being a lawyer to doing um, my own thing. How, how do you think someone who is, um, you know, a, a banker at JP Morgan in New York City, um, goes about, how would you go about advising them on the best way to kind of find somebody that can help them through that next stage in, in terms of finding a mentor that, uh, and finding that way to kind of give, give them permission to transition to the next part of their life? Yeah, I think, uh, I think one of the things I've been fortunate in is, uh, and it seemed obvious to me, but, but I think a lot of people aren't very good at figuring out who to listen to and who to take advice from. And they take advice and listen to advice from the wrong people. And I, I think that it's important that you only take advice from somebody who's in a position in the very area they're giving you advice that you'd trade places with. Yeah. And I, I remember when I was trying to decide what to do after quitting Trammell Crow, I had two older gentlemen that were giving me advice and, uh, and it was opposite advice. And uh, one of them was very successful and the other, you know, was kind of hit and miss. And it made it pretty easy for me to figure out who to listen to. Right. But I think so many times people listen to their friends or they listen to, you know, other people that haven't earned the right to give them advice that they listen to and that they take. And, and so I think number one is figuring out who to, to listen to. I think number two, uh, all relationships are give and take. And so if you want to develop a relationship, if there's somebody that you want as a mentor, you need to figure out what they need that you can provide. Because, you know, friendships, if it's all one way, it won't last yeah. very long. Yeah. And, uh, 
and and so I think thinking about if if they if you're younger, if you're in your 20s and they're in their 40s or 50s, they probably have kids. And I think that uh, you know you can you can be helpful to their kids as a mentor in a way that they can then be helpful to you as as a mentor. Uh, but I think there's a lot of different ways and it's different, different, but I think trying to think about what you can do to add value to the relationship, what matters to them is probably a good place to start. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, um, super helpful, especially, yeah, thinking, I think you're right. There are a lot of people that are taking advice, uh, and, uh, fall prey to people's opinions that are nothing, nothing like they want to ultimately be like. Um, but there's, but they're just, it's a proximity issue. They're close. And so when you're going to dinner and asking about opinions on life, they're, they're right there with you. So you kind of listen to them. Um, and so I think, uh, that was, that was definitely something that helped as I got to know your family and saw, uh, the different advice that you gave me in terms of get out of the law as soon as possible. Once you're there for 12 or 18 months, you know, it's very hard to not be a lawyer anymore. That advice that was relatively singular, there weren't a lot of people talking like that, but everyone else was in a position that um, taking that mindset of, well, do I want to be more like Steve or do I want to be more like these, uh, partners at these law firms, the answer became very clear in terms of whose advice to, to give weight to. Um, so I appreciate the time. I know you're busy and uh, hopefully this, this helps people as they kind of transition and, um, and we'll catch up soon. Great. Hey, thanks Raleigh. Great thanks. catching up. <clears throat> Take care.